it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have episode 288. Today, we are going to discuss Howard Marks' memos from 2022. Andrew recently wrote a great blog post covering these memos, and we thought this would be kind of a fun conversation to talk with each other about this, these ideas and share our thoughts with you guys. So I guess with that, why don't we go ahead and just kind of dive in and maybe you could give a brief synopsis of who Howard is and why we care what he says. Perfect. Howard Marks, one of the great all-time investors in my book, he writes these memos kind of just sporadically whenever inspiration comes to mind. He writes up these memos to his clients at Oak Tree um, and guys like Warren Buffett read his memos. Everybody loves his memos and he's just really insightful. He's been in the industry for a very long time. He started in like the 1970s. So he's seen a share of bull and bear markets and he's just got a great way of teaching and making observations about the market. A lot of people listen to him and I really enjoy his writing. Yeah, I do too. He's very even-handed and he's very thoughtful in his discussions and he's very good at explaining complicated topics in a way that the average every lay person can understand. And I remember reading early on that Warren Buffett said that whenever he sees one of Howard's memos, it's the first thing he reads right away. And that struck me as, hey, maybe I should check this guy out because <laughs> I, at first I wasn't familiar with him. He wrote a fantastic book years ago, too, called uh, The Most Important Thing. And if you have not read that, that's a must read. But his memos are fantastic. And he's been writing them since the 90s, I believe. So they're a great source of wisdom. And I've read through a lot of the early ones. So if you ever feel so inspired, you can find a collection on the Internet and you can read them as well. So, I mean, why don't we just kind of start with the first one on your list? Sure. So early in the year 2022, Howard Marks talked about a pretty tough subject, which is when do you sell? And that's hard because I think buying is so much easier than the selling. This is a great company or it's trading at a great price. But when do you sell? That could mean taking a really hard look at yourself and thinking about what are some of the reasons why I think I want to sell? 
and understanding that while that sounds logical to yourself in your head, it's probably really emotional. And Howard Marks talked about how emotional that selling process is and really in general how psychological the market is because it has all these investors who have these selling emotions. It's really tough when you're trying to figure out if you want to sell or not because like he said, a stock could go up in price and that makes you want to sell. And a stock could go down in price and that would also make you want to sell. So it's it's tough. Yeah, it really is. And I think it highlights the probably one of the hardest things to manage when you're investing, and that's our emotions. They can make us do rational things and irrational things depending on how you're wired. And everybody is wired a little bit different. And you know, to his point, price going up can make you want to sell and the price going down can make you want to sell. And, and sometimes that can happen in the same day. So it's a hard place to be. And I guess, how would you, how would you categorize, like, how do you determine when is a good time to sell? For me, it kind of goes back to what we've said throughout the life of this podcast is ask yourself, has something fundamentally changed with the business? That really forces you to take the emotions out of the equation as much as you can. Because then now we're looking at, okay, what are the facts versus how do I feel or how is the stock done? I can't remember where I heard this years ago where they said, a stock doesn't know that you own it. (laughs) Right. But it's I struggle with this too. It's like, you look at a stock and you say, okay, I've had this for six months and it's doubled. Maybe now I want to sell. But if you think about like that has nothing to do with what's going on in the business and the stock doesn't know that you that you held it when it doubled, you could zoom out further back in the chart and maybe for an investor who was six months earlier, the stock fell in half. And then mm-hmm. to them, seeing it double from falling in half was not a big deal. But for you, you feel like it's a big deal. So it's interesting how we can get different emotions and even different ways we feel about a company solely based on when we happen to buy the stock. Mm-hmm. And I, I do this all the time. And right now, I do not like Target. <laughs> do you have anybody like that? Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. I understand. <laughs> I don't like this company for insert reason B and A and B. <laughs> right. It is hard, but it's something that's worth doing is trying to figure out what has something changed and yeah. framing it in that way. Yeah. I, that, I think that's probably the best way to combat that and I, to kind of preclude all this idea of whether you want to sell something or not is really take a hard look at your process of how you make a decision to buy a company and making sure that you notate it somewhere, somehow, whether it's a formal document, whether it is a Word document, an Excel document, a Google's doc, a notes on your phone, any place that you think that you would refer to why I bought PayPal or why I bought Target. Why did I buy Target? If you write it down, and then when you're judging yourself or questioning yourself, you can look at why you bought it, and then you can determine whether that has changed or not. And if it hasn't, then you can kind of try to analyze your brain and why am I thinking I don't like this company anymore? If I see that the reason why I bought Target is still in play, then it's more an emotional decision. And then it's depending on how you're wired, it's a little easier to, I guess, ignore or 
push through that feeling or whatnot. And our friend Ocean is actually going through this right now. He reached out to us and asked us about this very thing because he has a company that's running up in price and he's he's torn on whether he's to sell it or not. And one of the things that I was thinking about in regards to that was if the fundamental reason the company has changed, then consider selling it. But if it hasn't, then I would consider keeping it. I think, you know, watering was that phrase that Peter Lynch always says, you know, we should water our flowers and not our weeds kind of thing. And that's how you get really, really great returns is by holding on to companies, even though they may grow past the point where you're comfortable with it. One thing to always keep in mind is there are a million and one different ways to slice how to invest and value investing has a hundred and thousand different ways that people can slice it. And one of the ways is when it gets to your intrinsic values to sell it and find another company. But there's also a lot of people in that type of investing that believe in holding it and continuing to hold it until something changes about the company. And I guess I kind of fall more into that camp, but it's hard. It's just as hard to see a company go up a whole bunch than it is to see it go down a whole bunch. In some ways, it's easier to see it go down a whole bunch than it does to see it go up a whole bunch because you start wondering, when is it going to end? And how is it going to end? And that's I think that's one of the things that Howard's getting at is it's really hard when you see it go up and it you know, it doubles or triples in value in three months. You're like, okay, is this really going to continue or not? <laughs> Am I just on a hot streak and I need to get out now? Or is this really what's going to happen with the company? So selling is probably harder. I think it's way harder than buying a company because you, you just, there's so many unknowns and so many variables to it. And that's exactly what he said is when a stock goes up, we don't want to feel regret or embarrassment. So we try to lock in the gains. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember that underneath that stock is a business. And usually when the stock price is going up, that's because the business is doing well. So if you're really buying stocks because you want to be a part owner of great businesses, then selling just because it's gone up doesn't make a lot of sense. Because you're not trying to be a, a business owner. You're trying to be a guy who's playing in the stock market. And mm-hmm. that's a very hard game to play. And way more investors have done well by being business owners. Yes. But it's very, very hard. And I still struggle with it today when I see a stock that's gone up and it's like, uh, you know, there's an economic, bad economic forecast. This is a cyclical company. List can go on and on and on. Mm. So I don't know if you ever shake those feelings maybe other than like going back to the well and refreshing yourself, getting back to the basics and hearing the important principles and just letting those hammer into your head. Mm-hmm. I, to me, it helps to re- when I read, when I read a memo like this, it helps to remember that. And then those emotions I might've felt over the last week or month, you get perspective on those emotions. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, 
savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I mean, yeah. Do you have any like other strategies for kind of dealing with those emotions other than maybe going back to the basics, if you will? I think you kind of hammered, hammered the point home. I think remembering the basics looking at making sure that the fundamentals of the business haven't changed. And if they haven't, then consider when it comes to emotional decisions, for me, it's easier to go back and look at hard numbers and look at the the story the numbers are trying to tell me because that triggers that more rational part of my brain to take, I guess, more control as opposed to the emotional part of the brain, which is telling me, get out, get out, get out, get out. And so that helps me I guess, center myself, if if you will, and looking at my thesis, looking at the numbers, trying to understand what's really happening with the business. And I think, and remembering the fundamentals of why I'm doing what I'm doing. I think all those things help me kind of move past the emotional part of it. What about you? Yeah, similar thing, I guess. Can you give, or maybe somebody who's a beginner, they don't even know what you mean by looking at the numbers. Can you give an example of a number or two that you might look at to uh, to help you with that? Yeah, for sure. I think there's a myriad of things I would look at. One of the things... For a beginner. For a beginner. Okay. For a beginner, I think the first thing I would look at is looking at the the revenue growth or the top line growth of the business to make sure that what it's selling is still resonating with people. That's probably the easiest thing to for a beginner to wrap their head around is the iPhone still popular with people and what is it continuing to be popular with people? And if that seems to be the case then that's, I guess, everything else, if the revenue is still doing well and the company is managed well, i.e. if the CEO is still in charge, so Tim Cook is still running the ship and the revenue growth is still going well, then 
for the most part, everything else should take care of itself as far as the numbers go. And I guess the other part of it would be the earnings growth and you know, looking at the earnings of the company, which is the bottom line of the what the company earns from all the revenue that they generate. If those two numbers are still staying steady and growing a relative clip to what they were before, better or at least as good as they did before, then those kinds of ideas, everything else will start to kind of make sense. But if you start to see those things drop and drop over a long period of time, not one quarter, not one year, even maybe just kind of depends on what the business is. Like in finance, everything depends, right? But if you see revenue drop for one quarter, okay, it could be seasonal. You know, Walmart is super busy in December, not so busy in January. So it would make sense that maybe the first quarter of the year for them wouldn't be as good a growth as the fourth quarter of the year before. So kind of understanding that about the business would be super helpful. But if you see it, the revenue is flat this year and then you notice the next year it's maybe down 2% and maybe then the year after that is down 3%, then it's time to start looking and seeing what's going on with the business. Is the iPhone obvious suddenly become... Is something else coming out to replace it? Is it not as popular as it was before? Have they reached a saturation point with the pricing of how much they charge for each new iPhone? At some point, they're going to reach a limit, right, for Apple. And that those are things you have to keep in mind. But I think those are the things I would look at. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Give us one for the stats nerds out there. Oh, well, for me, it's always going to return to ROIC. That's the number I'm always going to look at. And For those of you unfamiliar with that term, it means return on invested capital. And basically what that means without going into all the nitty gritty, it basically means that the higher the number, the better. And it indicates how much the money invests to continue to grow the business. And no matter how great a business it is, whether it's Google, Tesla, Amazon, you know, by Visa, they all have to spend money to make money. And basically the higher the number, the better. And if a company is already producing at a really high number like Apple and, you know, 150% or something stupid like that, if that starts to shift, if you start to see that number trend downwards, that's not a good sign. It just means they're not being as efficient. It's an efficiency ratio. And if that number starts to slide, that's an indication that they're not investing as, as well. And that could harm the growth of the company down the road. And so that, you know, for the stats nerds, that's the first number I always look at is ROIC. That's like a siren song for me, for any company. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, when that starts to go the wrong way, that could be one of the few ways that you start to realize that management's kind of on the spending spree. Mm -hmm. And over the long term, that's not good for shareholders. Mm -mm. No, it's not. Not at all. All right. So what's the next memo up for discussion? What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Ooh, I mean, we could go a couple places. I liked this idea of Rhymes, where he talks about bull market psychology and just kind of the, the general cycles that you'll see and some of the mindsets that happen with that. So maybe break down the typical kind of bull bear market cycle gave it away a little bit right but right. break it break that down for us and like what does the history of the stock market look like for people who haven't been investors for 20 years yeah the market as a general rule 
will go up over a long period of time. And if you look at a chart of the S&P 500 stock returns over the last 50 years, the last 100 years, you're going to see a kind of a, a gradual you know, growth from the bottom left to the top right going up. And so if you can visualize that, that's like, oh, great, that's awesome. But if you zoom into that, let's say let's we're looking at 100 years, but now we're going to zoom into 2001 to 2010, just for example, you're going to see the wildest roller coaster you have ever ridden on. And you may think, Ooh, that may even be too much for me <laughs> uh, as far as like extreme uh, ups and downs, you know, loop-de-loops. I mean, just, you know, it, all kinds of volatility. And what that really means is, is that over a long period of time, when you invest, you're going to see lots of volatility, lots of ups and downs in the prices of the stock of Apple, for example. You'll see it, you know, selling for just for example, 102 today, 103 tomorrow, 100 the next day, maybe down to 98 the following day, maybe down to 97 the following day, then shooting back up to 102, you know, all within, you know, a five to weekday period. You're going to see lots of movement and lots of noise. And a bull market and a bear market are kind of a extrapolation of that volatility that you see in the stock price. You're going to see periods where everybody's going to be super excited about stocks and you're going to see lots of activity, lots of people buying into the market, pushing the prices up higher and higher and higher because the stock market is basically a, a bid and sell kind of place. It's a place where you and I go to buy something and somebody else is competing against us for that price. And so we may say, yeah, I'll buy Apple at 102, but Andrew will say, I'll buy it at 103. And then I'll say, well, I really want it at 104. And it just keeps going up and up and up. And that's what happens in a bull market is that everybody gets super excited about investing in stocks because the stocks are going up. It's counterintuitive, but at some point that turns and the market sentiment turns bearish. And what that means is that people start being afraid of being in the market. They start running for the assets. They start selling all their shares, which drives the price down. And so the market goes in cycles of bull markets and bear markets. And we went through a bull market into the dot-com bubble, 2000, 2001 period. And then the stock market fell. And then it gradually started to rebound for like 2001 to what, 2003 or four. It was pretty much down and kept going down for a long time. And then it started to build back up into the great financial crisis around 2007 and 2008. And then it fell off a cliff. And it was down for a while and it was in a bear market for a year or two. And then it started to recover around 2011. And that went basically straight up until the pandemic. And then we had a very short bear market during the pandemic, like a month or two. And then it started to rebound and started to go back up again. So all these cycles, you can see these ups and downs of the market, which are bull and bear markets. But over the long period, you still see this gradual growth over that same period. So that, I guess the way I think of it, do you have anything else you'd like to add to make it better? (laughs) (laughs) That pretty much covers that. I feel like it's interesting how the markets can kind of build on themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, everybody starts to sell. And so everybody starts to sell because everybody's selling and same on the bull side. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, you, you see people run for the exits when everything when they feel like everything is going wrong. And the ironic part of it is is that you make the majority of your money in bear markets because that's when you can buy 
great companies that are on sale because what happens when everybody's running for the exit is the overall market all goes down. So even companies that are performing really, really well start to lose value in the stock price, not the value of the actual business. You know, Target, for example, if Target is still selling all their stuff and people still want to go to buy, buy Target, actually probably more people go to Target during a bear market than they do during a bull market because people are afraid of going into a recession and, and you can buy, you know, larger quantity of products at Target, Walmart and Costco. And so you can save money and they actually do better business during those downturns. So that's when you can buy those things on sale. Just like you want to buy your socks on sale, you want to buy stocks on sale. Were there any narratives that you can recall from 2021? Because that felt like the real peak of this bull market psychology that Howard Marks was talking about. Mm -hmm. Can you remember some of those narratives and how that was very typical of like the dot-com bubble, for example? Well, I think I think the biggest one, and I think Howard probably talked about this, is this time it's different. I think that really sums up the whole narrative of the bull market during that period of time is this time it's different. That all the rules that applied before don't exist anymore. And you can buy, I hate to pick on people that invested in Peloton you know, for the 172nd time. Well, but- you can pick on me with Domino's a little bit. That's another one where looking back in hindsight, <laughs> I paid too high of a price for it mm. getting seduced by its high ROIC mm-hmm. and thinking that interest rates would stay that low forever. And right. so the margin of safety on that was so low mm-hmm. that if interest rates turned, I have a losing stock and that's exactly what happened. Right. Well, I mean, I did the same thing with PayPal. I got entranced by their high ROIC, their high growth rate and that fintechs were going to take over the world. And that, all of those things didn't come to pass and I paid too high of a price for it. It was trading at high forties PE when I bought it. And, you know, it was an experiment to see if this time it was different and it wasn't. And it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, especially for that company isn't, and it wasn't, I think that just kind of encapsulates it perfectly. This time it's different and it, it never is. And that's, I think one of the things that Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger have said this and Shane Parrish have said this. So three really smart people, you know, looking back and reading books that have stood the test of time will give you such timeless wisdom to help you hopefully avoid making some of those kinds of mistakes like this time it's different because even though the technology has changed and the businesses have changed that we're investing the psychology and the the idea behind capitalism and kind of how it works it hasn't changed and so even though technology has changed you know paypal versus exxon are completely different businesses and the tech businesses like microsoft and google dominate the world now where exxon did 20 years ago but the same reason buying exxon too high a price is the same narrative that you can apply to google if you buy it at too high a price it could come back to bite in the butt and it most likely will and i think that's what our howard was talking about is you know this time it's not different it's it just isn't i mean that's one of the beauties of guys like buffett i think is that he's been investing for 70 years and he's seen everything. And he's seen all these ups and downs, these cycles, these euphorias, and these pits of despair. And through all that, just the general same ideas have stayed true to what investing is. And he pointed something out about Ben Graham. So Ben Graham wrote this fantastic book, The Intelligent Investor. And something that Warren pointed out in the last 
uh, meeting. I was listening to a meeting this morning. And one of the things he pointed out is the intelligent investor is still in the top 50 of investing books of all time. And even though there's lots of popular books that make the, you know, Wall Street Journal, you know, top 100 and the New York Times bestseller list, they all fade. But that book has stayed there and they sold over, I think he said, almost 8 million copies of that book that was written back in 1949. And they've had many different editions of it. And I think they have a new one coming out, he said. But the point of it, the point is, is that a lot of the things Ben Graham talked in that, about in that book are still, can still use them today. Those ideas are still impacting investing today. Margin of safety, Mr. Market, for example, just those two ideas alone, they're, they're still applicable today, even though you know the businesses are different from Exxon to Microsoft. So I think all those things make an impact. Yeah, very well said. Let's move on to one other memo he talked about. He called this one the illusion of knowledge. That's basically talking about all the macroeconomic forecasts that you will have no trouble finding and probably get pushed in your face anywhere you go on the internet. So needless to say, with the title Illusion of Knowledge, I think that kind of gives away how he feels about macro forecasts. But tell us like briefly what's a macro forecast and why is it not really that helpful or usually even accurate? First of all, it's it's all based on future events and nobody can tell determine the future. And so they're trying to take past events and project them forward. And it's like weather forecasting as advanced as they're getting with the technology, they still can't tell you if it's going to rain or not the next day with 100% accuracy. And it's kind of the same idea applies with macro. And the economists, smart people, and definitely passionate about what they believe and whatnot, but they're still trying to project the future. And you can't project the future. You have no idea what the economy is going to do in the next six months, let alone the next six years. You can estimate and you can project based on things that have happened in the past, and but you're not going to be ever 100% right. And trying to anticipate how Apple's going to do six years from now is a really hard thing to do. And looking at the macro as a way to invest, I think is even from a higher level view is almost impossible. And I think kind of the way that I try to look at it is Peter Winch said once, spending 10 minutes looking at macro to determine your investments is eight minutes too long. <laughs> and so I think that probably kind of sums up my, I guess, thoughts on it. What are your thoughts on the whole idea? Yeah, I agree. I mean, macro, how you can even think about an economy with millions of people and millions upon millions of products and millions upon millions of, upon millions of transactions every year. Good luck trying to forecast any of that and then come with up with some cohesive thing at the end. You know, if I'm a beginner and I'm listening to that, that sounds really pessimistic and maybe even how can you buy a stock if there's no way of knowing what a stock's gonna do in six years? So how do you get over that when it comes to buying stocks? Because you are buying an uncertain future when it comes to a stock. So how do you deal with that? fact that you really can't forecast how a company is going to be performing or what kind of profits they're going to have in two or three years, let alone six to 10 years. I think there's a couple things I guess I think about, and then I'm going to, then I'm going to ask you the same question. I guess number one, uh, kind of going back to Warren Buffett, I am betting that a company that's operating in the United States 
is going to have, if it's had success in the past, it's, I'm betting that it's going to have success in the future. And because of, because of all the advantages it has of operating here in the U.S. with between the laws and the ability for them to be creative. And I guess the, the mindset behind people that run these businesses is to always improve and get better. And that's one of the things that drives our industries is, you know, that I guess drive to always get better and always improve. And when you look at a company like Microsoft, you know, Satya Nadella is driving that business to become better and he's not willing or happy to sit on past results. And so because of that, I have faith that they will continue to do that. So some, a lot of it's based on the faith that I believe that the leaders of the companies that drive these businesses will continue to do well over you know, a longer period of time. That's one of them. And number two, I guess, is probably just foolish enthusiasm <laughs> that these companies will do well, in part because they've done well in the past, but also by understanding the business and the psychology of what they sell and based on the quality of what it is that they sell, you know, to go back to the iPhone, it's something easy and everybody can understand is that it's a great product. A lot of people love it. When a new one comes out, people flock to buy it. And I don't see that changing. You know, I think people would rather have a second phone than a second car. I think that's what Warren Buffett said. And I don't disagree with him. And so I think until that narrative changes, I think that Apple will continue to do well. And kind of the same thing with with Microsoft or any of the businesses that I own, whether it's a company like Ajin or Visa. I think that those businesses will continue to do well because they've done well in the past and the products that they sell appear to continue to be profitable and desirable by people that would buy them. So I think that gives me enthusiasm for the long term. So, okay, now I've said my piece. I want to hear what you think. I agree with all of that. And I like the emphasis on kind of the faith because there is a bit of optimism you need to have to be an investor. And we have to understand there's trade-offs in the economy. One of the good trade-offs of people being greedy is the fact that they want more and so they work for more. And that can work to our advantage as an investor by owning great businesses. To add some... I guess, numbers to the equation. If you look back over the history, I mean, first off, you can look back at the history of, I think they were talking about when Manhattan was sold, the white settlers, it was like for like a couple dollars, three, four, five dollars. Mm-hmm. Funny backstory, I'm not going to get into it because it's kind of ironic. But anyway, to throw some numbers into the equation, if you look back at the history of capitalism and the economy, it spans back way farther than maybe some of us think, all the way back to the Dutch in the 1600s. And they made their own corporation and sold stock. And then that's moved on and went to the United States. And then sometime after the railroads, we had our stock market. And then that's been growing steadily over time. You can look back over 100 years, 9, 10, 11% a year, somewhere in there is the average return from the stock market. So, it is an optimism, but it's also grounded with a lot of historical context. And so for me, if I'm looking at a stock, I have the general, I have an idea of how the economy has grown over time. Sometimes it's in different periods, it's averaged like 6% growth a year. Some periods it's been closer to 3 or 4% a year. So if you know that, okay, the stock market returns this much, the economy generally grows this much, 
if you're projecting the businesses that you own to grow not much more than that, then you're really not being foolish or overly excited about the future of the business because you're saying there's been thousands and thousands of businesses that have grown around this amount for a very long time. So that's where you can use comparisons and kind of say, am I, am I estimating that the stock's going to grow a certain amount? And if, if that sounds like a reasonable bet, then you're doing a responsible thing with your money. And so that's how I kind of look at putting your emotions in check and, and buying stocks that are trading at a good price because you figure that they're going to do, they're not going to maybe double every year for the next 10 years, but maybe they can grow 7% a year from here on out. That's a good example, I think, of a good stock buy versus like somebody whose head's in the clouds. Yeah, very well said. Yeah, very well said. Did you have any closing thoughts on the memos? I really enjoy reading Howard's memos. I think they're full of wisdom and insight. And he focuses more on the thought process behind investing, more of the psychology and more of the thought process uh, behind as opposed to numbers. And I like that. And I think it could be very helpful, especially for beginner investors, because he's really he's really grounded and he explains things in an easy to understand way. And I would strongly, if you haven't read any of his memos, just go to you know, Google Howard Marks memos and read one of them. You're going to come away with some good takeaways from any of the ones that you choose. It could be the ones that Andrew wrote about, or it can be anything that you find on the internet that can be very helpful. What are your thoughts on his stuff? Agree. 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 Okay. <laughs> agree. 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 All right. Well, With that, we will go ahead and wrap up the show for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app if you enjoyed our little show. If you would, kindly consider giving us a review. It greatly helps our show. And don't forget to browse the incredible materials we've created for you at einvestingforbeginners.com. Lastly, continue growing your knowledge as an Investing for Beginners insider with insights and educational tips delivered right to your inbox for free. Sign up today. And with that, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.